It has been wonderful to have David back. Uh, and I don't want you guys to be alarmed by the fact that he's not here. He's not gone for another four months. He's just gone for this week. He will be back. I uh, also, though, appreciate the opportunity to uh, be up here with you guys on occasion. We've begun our study of Isaiah, what David referred to last week as the Gospel of Isaiah, which is an appropriate title because uh, it is the good news about Jesus Christ. I don't know how many of you knew that historically the first four books of the New Testament have been known as the Gospel. Not the Gospels, plural, but the Gospel. And then each of the books, according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John, because together they give us a clear picture of the good news of who Jesus is and, and what He has done, what He has said, what He is like. Well, the Gospel of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, more than any other Old Testament book, I think, also brings us that same good news. It really fills out the picture of who He is and what He did. The significance of that. In fact, understanding Isaiah is important so that we can understand the New Testament gospel. That's why this is such an exciting study. It also fits very well with what we've been doing for the last year. Uh, if you remember back, we were studying the book of Galatians. And we kept coming back to the fact that if you want to see your life transformed, if you want to see uh, changes in, in your heart, in your attitude, in your behavior, you need to hang out with Jesus. Look at Him. Listen to Him. That's why we began our study of, of Mark, because Mark's a great place to look at him, to listen to him, to see him as he really is. And our study of the book of Isaiah is just a continuation of that desire to see him as he is and to allow the impact of that experience to change our lives. This morning we're going to be looking at chapter 6 of Isaiah. And no passage, no other passage speaks more powerfully of the importance of seeing Jesus. There are other passages in Isaiah that will talk more about who he is, what he did, and the significance of these things. And I'm excited about the prospect of studying those. But this chapter, chapter 6, gives us the most dramatic and clear presentation of the importance to our, our spiritual walk, to our Christian walk, of seeing Jesus. This is a large church. And occasionally I hear people who are concerned about the fact that there's a lot of ministries here that need people to be involved and it's hard to find people to minister in these, in these positions, that a lot of people here may not be growing spiritually. And there is a lot to those concerns. In fact, as leaders, uh, the Staff and elders and those who lead the different ministries in this church spend a lot of time asking questions of how we can see the spiritual life of this church deepen, how we can encourage people toward intimacy with God, how we can lead people to a greater commitment to service. Well, this passage has the answer to some of those questions. There are a lot of ways we could try to go about accomplishing these objectives. We could and do encourage you to spend time every day reading your Bible, praying, spend that time with God. And we do want you to do that. 
But that in and of itself can become an empty ritual, not really deepening life. We can try to whip you up into worship with rousing songs and fantastic performance of special music. And again, we do want our corporate worship to be meaningful, deep, vibrant. But showmanship and emotional manipulation really yield very shallow results. Not really able to lead us toward intimacy with God. We can get people involved in serving and giving by putting a little pressure on, a little guilt. A little guilt goes a long ways in, in staffing a Sunday school class or finding someone to give rides to, to those who are, are shut in and have no other way to get to church. But again, these things, pressure and guilt, yield bad fruit eventually and ultimately. Uh, using people, creating an environment where hypocrisy thrives and, and poisons the life of the church. So what are we to do? How can we see people's spiritual life deepen? How can we encourage people toward intimacy with God? How can we lead people to a greater commitment to service? Well, that's why God gave us passages like this one. So turn with me to Isaiah 6. I want to look at Isaiah's experiences and see how they affect our experience. Look at what happened to him See what happens to us. Let me read the first four verses of Isaiah 6. In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Now this is, is pretty radical stuff. Let's work our way through it. We're told all of this happened in the year King Uzziah died. Now we don't know exactly what year that was. Probably a year or two either side of 740 B.C. King Isaiah was a very good king. He was a great king and a godly man. In fact, probably the greatest and most godly king since Solomon. But now he was dead. And Isaiah sees a greater king sitting on the throne. We're also told in, in 2 Chronicles 26 that at the very end of his life, Uzziah became proud and entered the temple. See, what happened was he was a good king. He was a godly man. And he started thinking, well, I'm the king. And I'm a righteous person. I've got my act together spiritually. I deserve to be able to go in to the holy place. And so he just marched right in. Several priests followed him in there and tried to get him out of there. And as they stood there arguing, leprosy broke out on Isaiah's face. He had stood there in the symbolic presence of God. The priests immediately ran out, the Isaiah ran out, but the disease stayed, and that is what actually killed Uzziah. And see, Isaiah knew this. He was part of the king's court, and that adds to the terror of what happened to him. But we're told, in the year all of this happened to Uzziah, Isaiah saw the Lord. We don't have a description of the Lord. All we're told is that he was seated on a throne, high and exalted, and that the edge of his robe filled the whole temple. Now all we have is a description of the edge 
of his robe. Some suggest that that is because at this point Isaiah was flat on the ground, hiding his face, only able to sneak furtive peeks up at what he saw. And this may be true because in Exodus 33, when when Moses asks to see God, he's only allowed a peek at his back as he passes by because to look straight at God was too terrifying. It would have killed him. Perhaps that's why Isaiah only describes the bottom of the robe. That's all he could see from his position on the floor. But it's also possible that the things that Isaiah did see were too personal, too overwhelming, too precious and and intimate to write down. You know, in, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that he saw the Lord. He doesn't know whether it was physically or in a vision, but he tells us that the things that he saw, the things that he heard, in 2 Corinthians he tells us, were too precious, too intimate to speak of. And I think that's what was going on for Isaiah. He realized that to describe anything beyond the edge of God's robe would have been to profane his experience. You don't talk casually about something that intimate. There's something I want to stop and think about right here. According to the Gospel of John, the person that Isaiah saw, the person seated on that throne, was Jesus himself. In John 12, the Apostle John is talking about Jesus. And then he quotes this passage, Isaiah 6. And he says, Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him, of Jesus. You see, this is one of several appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, don't ask me how this happened. But several times in the Old Testament, Jesus himself appears to people in human form, in his glorified state. And again, the response is normally fear and terror. In fact, in the New Testament, when the Apostle John sees Jesus after his ascension, after his glorification, he appears much the same way as he does here to Isaiah. Anyway, on with what Isaiah saw. We're told there were seraphs, seraphim, several seraphs, flying around the throne, whatever a seraph is. You know, we don't really know much. Uh, The word itself means flaming one, so maybe they kind of look like torches. But we know they had a face, and they had feet, and they had six pair of wings. We just don't know how all that was put together and what was in between. You know, all the way through Scripture, we'll see the writers of Scripture mention this angelic being or this demonic being, we see that there are a variety of spiritual beings that God has created. And this should not surprise us because as we look around, we see that there is an impressive variety of physical beings that He has created and placed even on this earth. Uh, Last uh, month, uh, my family and a couple of friends of my daughters were down at the Salt Lake Zoo. And we were walking around and there was just such an impressive uh, variety of creatures. We decided we had to start categorizing them just to keep track. So we just we looked for the weirdest animal. And uh, in my opinion, it was the kangaroo. The rest of them voted for the anteater. But if you look at those animals, those are really strange animals. Or we uh, decided the giraffe was the tallest. The uh, hippopotamus was definitely the fattest. 
The polar bear was the most huggable, though I doubt if anybody would really want to try to hug a polar bear. But I, as I said, as we went around, we just were, we just had to have some way of processing all the multitude of different creatures that God has created. So it shouldn't surprise us that there are a multitude of different spiritual beings. However, exactly what those beings looked like, exactly what they were, doesn't seem important to the point Isaiah is making or anywhere in Scripture. It, they don't seem uh, that it's necessary to give us all the details. So it's not really something I think we should spend too much time worrying about either. But these seraphs that were around the throne with one set of wings they kept up in the air, the other set they hid their faces because even though they were rightfully in the presence of our glorified Lord, they could not look on Him directly or recklessly. With another set they covered their feet, which is a sign of humility. And these guys kept calling back and forth to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, there's been a lot of speculation as to why they repeat holy, holy, holy three times. Many people see here kind of an oblique allusion to the, the Trinity. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit. But a guy by the name of John Oswald points out that in the Hebrew language, repeating something three times is really just the strongest superlative that you can use. In other words, repeating holy three times is a way of saying He is the holiest of the holiest. There are none holier. What does that mean? Well, holiness, when it's used in reference to God, speaks of His honesty, His integrity, His faithfulness to do what He says, His unfailing practice of doing the right thing, His patience, His kindness, His love, His ethicalness. To say God is holy is to say God is good, really good. Now, the other thing that these guys were shouting back and forth is, the whole earth is full of His glory. Now, what does that mean? Well, glory is revealed greatness. Glory is the revelation of greatness. So what they're saying is that the whole earth is full of the revelation of God's greatness. Not just the temple is full. The whole earth is full. And if you look around, if you look, you'll see the evidence of His greatness, the revelation of His greatness. You look at creation, you see His power in placing the stars in the sky and designating their course. You see His might in, in throwing up the mountains. So last week, we were on a staff retreat up in McCall during one of the, the uh, free times. Several of us uh, loaded up in a couple of cars and went up to Josephine Lake, which is above the Payette Lakes. The road up there is horrendous. I mean, there are boulders, there are potholes that you can't see the bottom of. But anyway, once you get past the road, it's a very short little hike up to this beautiful lake with, with sheer cliffs on three sides. And the water is just crystal, full of cutthroat. As we sat around there, Don lusting for a fishing pole, the rest of us enjoying the beauty of God's creation. Cherry Gonzalez. 
comment and she said, how could anybody come up here and see this beauty and not see the hand of God? Because it was just gorgeous. When you look at creation with your eyes open and your heart open, you see the evidence of His greatness, the revelation of His greatness. You see it in, in His wisdom in designing a bird or, or an insect or the, the awesome intricacy of the human body. Or you see His delight in beauty in designing a meadow or, or a butterfly wing. Everywhere you look, if you will look, the whole earth is full of the revelation of His greatness. You will see His greatness every bit as much as if you were standing in that temple with Isaiah staring into this vision of God's glory. Let me uh, digress just for a second right here. You know, this passage with the uh, angels hovering over God saying, Holy, 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 repeating the same thing and endless eternal repetition leaves most people cold. I mean, if this is what heaven is like, it sounds like a boring place. Who wants to stand around a big room saying, holy, 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 for eternity? And that's just not exciting. It's not interesting to most of us. And it sounds like, who would want to go there? But it's, it, it's worth pausing and thinking about that. It's true. Heaven will be a place of ceaseless praise. But what's behind that praise? You know, if you're standing looking at a beautiful sunset, you have no choice. You have to turn to the person next to you and say, look at that. That is beautiful. It's gorgeous. Or if you've seen a movie that has really affected you profoundly, you've got to tell somebody how good it is. We are created with a compelling need to praise what we, what we admire or what touches us. And so it is with the angels who are in God's presence. And so it will be with us in heaven. We will be so overwhelmed with the, the beauty, the goodness of God that it will well up within us and it will bubble over into expressions of admiration. And, and just like our enjoyment, our delight in, in beautiful things, in great things, in wonderful things here is made complete, our, our enjoyment is filled out by expressing that praise. So in heaven, our, our pleasure, our ecstasy in the presence of one with whom we are so filled with love, one with, whom, who, with whose beauty we are so taken, our enjoyment and delight and ecstasy will be made complete by expressing that, by just saying, isn't he wonderful? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he holy, holy, holy? It will be like the, the best book you ever read, the best sunset, the best kiss, the, the greatest insight you've ever experienced, all rolled into one and amplified a million times. It will be sheer, unadulterated fun. But anyway, back to Isaiah. Let's look at how he responded to what he saw, how it affected him. Verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. 
Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Isaiah beheld the glory of God. He saw him. And suddenly he was aware that his this awesome beauty crashed into some inability in himself to, to embrace it, to, to even recognize it and to praise it. He realized there was something interfering, something blocking. And at that point, he had to face the fact that what was inhibiting his response to what he saw was his sin. See, sin does that to us. It keeps us from being able to see, being able to embrace, being able to praise beauty and value and good things. And he suddenly was crushingly aware in the presence of God that there was sin in him. And all he could do was to cry out. He says, woe is me. I am ruined. The word woe, as David said last week, really means, or is the Hebrew word oi. Like an oy vey. It, it, it means ugh. Ah! It's almost untranslatable. It's just an expression of despair. And he says, ah, I'm ruined. As the King James put it, I'm undone. Uh, I'm finished. This is it. It's over. And, and the term is even stronger than just saying, I am dead. What he's saying is, I'm going to cease to exist. I will be obliterated. See, that's the universal response of people when they see our Lord in His glorified state. It is abject terror. Back in Genesis 32, Jacob is sure he is going to die after he has seen the Lord. And and in Judges 13, Samson's father, Manoah, is sure that he and his wife are going to die because they've spoken with the Lord. It's not until... His wife calmly and rationally and unemotionally reminds him that God wouldn't have told them all the things he was going to do with their future if he was going to kill them. And it settles him down and he calms down. You know, even in the New Testament, the Apostle John, who in his gospel refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the man who leaned comfortably against Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, When he sees the glorified Lord in Revelation 1, he is terror-stricken. He falls on his face in fear until Jesus quiets him and tells him what he wants him to do. You see, that is the response. That is the effect of catching a glimpse of Jesus as he is. It is to be overwhelmed. And you know, his glory is overwhelming. His, his power, His wisdom, but that's not what gets people. That's not what frightens people. That's not what overwhelms people. What overwhelms people is His holiness. See, when Peter was first coming to understand who Jesus was, he's in a boat with Jesus. Jesus had just filled his nets full of fish and Peter had dragged those nets in and he looks up at Jesus and he doesn't say, Whoa, you're awesome. You control even the fish. Now what Peter does there in Luke 5 is he falls flat on his face in the bottom of that boat with the fish flopping all around him. And he grabs Jesus' feet and he says, Depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He's aware of his sinfulness in the face of Jesus' 
holiness. When we catch a glimpse of His holiness, all self-excusing is gone. Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. I realize that had to be devastating for Isaiah. Isaiah's lips were his best asset. I mean, they were the asset that God could use. Those, those were his means of ministry. And now he's confronting the fact that even his best is defiled. Even his best is no good before God. You see, we all have our, our best features. Uh, the things that get us by, that we feel good about ourselves, whether it's our looks or our intelligence or maybe our, our thoughtfulness of other people or our commitment to family or our, our work ethic. But in the face of God, these things shrivel up to insignificance compared to His beauty, His intelligence, His goodness, His faithfulness. We realize that, that we are left with nothing to brag about, nothing to commend ourselves. And that's where Isaiah found himself. And not, in talking about Lips. He's not only referring to sins of speaking, where you say something that hurts and, and damages someone, though that is where sin often and clearly manifests itself. I uh, can't tell you how many times I have been doing my absolute best to convince myself that everything is okay inside, and I'm trying to convince everybody around me that everything's okay inside, and then some rotten thing will come out of my mouth and slash my wife or, or scorch one of my daughters. And I'm forced to admit that everything isn't okay inside. I'm forced to look and say there is something wrong inside. You see, Jesus said it's that which comes out of a man that defiles him. And what comes out of our mouth comes out of our heart. James points out that the tongue is the one part of the body that reveals the polluted springs within and Isaiah is acutely aware, suddenly, of the, pollu- the pollution inside. And he is undone. Well, God doesn't just leave him there. God initiates a gracious, unasked-for cleansing. You see, Isaiah at this point is in no shape to ask for anything from God. He is overwhelmed with his own unworthiness. So God acts to redeem him. You see, God reveals himself to us not to destroy us, though sometimes, in fact, usually, that's what it feels like. And so we are afraid, and so we, we, we shrink back, we hide, we run, we avoid him. But he reveals himself to redeem us, to cleanse us. He sends the, the seraph with a coal from the altar of sacrifice and touches Isaiah's lips. The coal came from the sacrifice, from the altar, because the theology of the Old Testament is clear. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, without a sacrifice. And we know that the Old Testament sacrifice is a prefigure. It's a picture of Jesus' sacrifice of Himself. Ultimately, it is only Jesus' sacrifice, His giving Himself for us, that can remove our sin, that can remove our guilt. And using a, a, a coal, a fire, as the symbolic means for cleansing is appropriate. Because if you think about it, fire burns. It hurts. It, it, it scares us when it's out of control. 
And sometimes it seems when God is burning away the garbage in our life, the sin in our life, the confusion, and even, even the wounds that are there, sometimes it feels like the burning is out of control and we're terrified, we're afraid we will be entirely consumed. But it's only after burning that the core is revealed. And if you are in Christ, what you discover is that the core is gold. It's His life in us, working its way out through us. But even so, as, as Oswald puts it, when God takes away the sin which we have lived with for years, the experience is a wrenching, searing one. See, the flesh does not give up without a fight, without wounding, without terror. When who we are, when our pasts, when our, when, when our hearts are laid bare before ourselves and before God, it is painful and it is terrifying. That's why we avoid it. That's why we run from it. That's why we fight it so hard. But you see, all of this, all of the confusion, all of the, the sin, all of the guilt has to be removed. It can't just be covered over, though that's what we try to do. It can't just be ignored or overlooked, though that's what we long for. It can't be excused. It has to be removed. Our sin has to be forgiven. That's the only way to stop its malignant and putrid effect in our lives. That's exactly what God longs to do, what He's eager to do, what He will do gladly as we face our sin, our sinfulness, our, our, our resistance to Him, our indifference to Him. You see, that's where we struggle. We don't want to see these things. We don't want to admit these things. We don't want to face them. But that's where we need to learn to surrender. For when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He cleans us. That's His delight. That's why He gave His Son... Now notice Isaiah's response to this cleansing. He hears God talking to someone, maybe to himself, maybe to the seraph. And God says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah's response is wonderful. He's like an eager, innocent child. He volunteers himself. You know, all his self-consciousness is gone. He's clean. He's free. And he, he offers, hopefully, I'm here, will I do? You know, I get the picture of a, of a schoolboy volunteering to be milk monitor, you know, with his hand up, just pure excitement. And Isaiah says, here I am. Can I go? Can I do it? You know, what you see is the spontaneous and appropriate response to having experienced God's grace, to having experienced the almost unbelievable forgiveness and grace of God. The response is devotion, giving oneself to Him urgently and unreservedly. That's what we see in Isaiah. You see, that's what it's all about. That's what we want to see happen here. Motivation for ministry. That's the only healthy and substantial reason to get involved in ministry. Is that you have experienced God's grace. You've caught a glimpse of His holiness and in the face of that realized how unworthy you are. But in that state, in that abject state, 
You have experienced His forgiveness, His cleansing, His acceptance of you. And in response to that, in gratitude, you give yourself to Him to be used for His glory. Not trying to make up for your sins, not trying to atone, but having already been cleansed and freed, you say, God, I'm yours. Take me. Use me for your glory. Again, that's what it's all about. Now, some of you may be saying, but I'm already a Christian. Can I be converted again? Because that's what it seems like we're talking about. Well, realize when all of this happened to Isaiah, he was already a believer. He had already been involved in ministry for a long time. But something changes. You know, in the first five chapters, we saw Isaiah pronouncing woe on all of these people who had turned away from God. He, he blasts the leaders and the media of his society that glorify everything that is, is weak and, and the worst in human behavior and making it sound uh, attractive and, and inviting. He blasts those who are caught up in materialism, the special interest groups with their own private agenda demanding recognition and endorsement for their own brand of sin and rebellion. He, he blasts the, the, the people around him who are, are, are robbing from people, who are ripping everyone off in the name of politics or in the name of business. He sees the abuse of alcohol around him and he blasts them. He is ready to look in any direction and find those who have no time and place in their life for God. And as he looks around, he sees the cruelty, the the, the, the corruption, the self-deception of people around him. And he's, he's outraged. He is dismayed. He is indignant. And so he pronounces God's judgment on these people. Woe to you! And he thinks he is different than they. But suddenly, in the presence of a holy God, one who is holy good... He comes face to face with his own sinfulness. That he too lacks God's character. He too has been excusing, rationalizing his sinful behavior. He too has placed his own comfort and plans ahead of God's interests in life. And he's suddenly aware that he's no better off than they. And he's ready to pronounce judgment on himself. He says, woe to me. You know, we can look around our society and be filled with dismay and disdain. I mean, we also see the unashamed materialism that's enslaving and ensnaring our youth. We see the drug and alcohol abuse. We see the special interest, the gay lobby, the feminist lobby, the pro-choice lobby with their own agendas and we look out in horror. We see the corruption of the media and the way they glorify everything that is, is, is the worst in human behavior and make it sound humorous and exciting and attractive. We look at the indifference to the poor, the destruction of the family, the destruction of our environment, the, the political deception, the self-deception of people who have no time and place for their life in their life for God. And we too are ready, even eager, to pronounce God's judgment on them. We're different than that. We're not like them, we think. But face to face 
with a holy God, looking at Jesus with unveiled faces. We've got to come to grips with our own sinfulness. That we resist God's character in us. That we have a deep-seated aversion to Him. And we walk away. We ignore Him chronically. We've got to face our own tendency to excuse and, and to rationalize our behavior. And when we face Him, we realize that we are no better off than those that we would condemn. That we too lack His character. We too put our comfort plans above His interests. And the only thing that protects us from this experience, this confrontation with ourselves, is our distorted and self-protecting views of God. We don't ever come in contact with the Holy God. We view God as this big, nice guy who looks the other way and chuckles to himself and says, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. This God who would never criticize anyone. This God who we feel we're doing some great favor to by joining his team. It's because we don't look at the God of Scripture, the true God, the holy God who declares himself too pure to look upon sin, who demands be holy for I am holy. My wife has given me permission to share a little bit of of her story. She was a Christian. She had been one for as long as she knew. But uh, she found herself confused by and even a little annoyed by believers who kept telling her she was a sinner. She had never done anything dramatically wrong in her life. One evening as she was watching television, she was watching a movie, The King of Kings, and she saw the actor that was portraying Jesus, loving the people who were mocking him and, and abusing him and dragging him to the cross to kill him. And she seethed with rage. And at that point, she realized that she was not like this man. That his love was bottomless. Hers was shallow. He was really good. He was holy. And she confronted what was inside of her. And her heart's prayer became, Make me like you. You see, that's the response of a heart that has seen Jesus. We see that we are not like Him, and we long to be like Him. Now, if even the dim reflection of His character is portrayed in a Hollywood production can produce this effect, just think of what will happen if you look seriously and squarely at the Jesus portrayed in Scripture as He reveals Himself to us. I want to make... uh, one more point, because we have uh, about half a chapter left, but the time is gone. So I won't read the rest of the chapter. Basically what happens is after Isaiah volunteers, then God tells him what his message is going to be. And he tells Isaiah, listen, I'm going to send you out. You're going to tell people the truth and they're going to hate you for it. They're not going to listen. They're going to be annoyed by the fact that you tell them. Their hearts are going to be hardened. They're going to reject you. And Isaiah goes, ugh. You know, thanks for the ministry, God. It sounds exciting. It sounds fulfilling. It sounds uh, like I'll get all kinds of 
of uh, uh, praise and all kinds of affirmation. You see, God wanted Isaiah to know right up front coming into it that he could expect none of these things. Because it was important. There was no room for any inferior motivation. Isaiah couldn't go into it to, to look important, to feel good about himself, to, to, uh, to get praise and to get affirmation. Because none of that would come his way. And we have to realize up front, going into it, that if we give ourselves to God, we're not doing it in order to receive the affirmation of friends and of of other people, to receive praise, to look important. If we go into it with that motive, we cannot last. Because in fact, there will be times where it is thankless. There will be times when it is difficult Seemingly beyond endurance. The affirmation won't be there and we will crumble. Fact is, Jesus warns us of this himself. The fact is that there will be some people who will hate you. He said, if they hated me, they will hate you. And they did hate him. And that's hard. That's why Isaiah says, how long, Lord? I don't know if I can take this, was Isaiah's response. We shouldn't assume that it was somehow easier for these prophets than it is for us. It's not. There's nothing harder than having your, your family or, 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 or friends or, or people you work with or even people among us here harden their heart against God and, and reject Him and reject us in the process. It hurts and it confuses us. It doesn't mean we're doing things wrong. Some people will resent us for living and speaking the truth. The temptation there is then to compromise and to pull back and to distort the truth. But if we do that, how will they ever see a holy God unless we portray Him, we live His life through us accurately? If we start to compromise, we just confuse and we condemn them to be trapped in their confusion. That leads us back to looking at Jesus who lived this life perfectly, who loved us enough to, even though people rejected Him, even though He was gentle and tender and loving to them, He spoke the truth. And ultimately they killed Him for it. He went to the cross despising the shame because He loves us that much. He is holy and He loves us. Well, I guess the bottom line is this. We want you to be involved in ministry. We want you to be using your gifts to build each other up. We want you to be reaching out to people at work and sharing the gospel with people in your neighborhood. But more than that, and more fundamentally, we want you to see Jesus. And we want to see Jesus afresh ourselves. Because as we do, we will be blown out of our self-righteous, complacent stupor. We will see Him as He is and will confront ourselves as we are. And we will be humbled and we will confess our sins. And we will receive His forgiveness and His cleansing and His acceptance solely by His grace. And the response to that will be a a compelling desire to give ourselves to Him. To belong to Him. To be used by Him for His glory. You see, each step leads to the other. Each step is necessary to get to the other. 
And it all starts with really catching a glimpse of who he really is. This vision of God cannot be drummed up. But you can begin to look at him. Look at him as he reveals himself in Scripture. And to ask him desperately to show himself to you. It won't be like he did for Isaiah. Each time in Scripture that he reveals himself, it's unique. For each of you here, it will be personal and unique. For some, you may even see a vision. Others may even hear a voice. Still, others and most will have a calm assurance, an awareness of who their Lord is and his attitude toward you. Others will see his face on a brother or sister who's living his life. Others will see him as they read through the scriptures. You know, I have never had a vision, but I have seen Jesus my Lord. 